0: This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. It started with a place called the Stonewall Inn. Gay bars had been raided by police for decades. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people had been routinely arrested and subjected to harassment and beatings by the people who were meant to protect them. But one night in this place called the Stonewall Inn... When the police stormed in to continue their abuse, the clientele fought back. The uprising that night, led by drag queens, turned into a protest over the next few days and evolved into a movement that is still making the world better for everyone today. And it started with a place. On June 28, 1969, the patrons at the Stonewall Inn made history, which is why gay pride celebrations all over the country take place in June. And on June 27, 2016, President Obama and the National Park Service designated the Stonewall Inn, Christopher Park, and the surrounding streets as the first national monument to LGBTQ rights. In 1989, 20 years after the Stonewall uprising, and now nearly 30 years ago, radio producer Dave Isay created the first documentary of Stonewall ever in any medium. It was also Dave's first radio story, if you can believe it. He later went on to found the much beloved and hugely popular StoryCorps project. With the anniversary and national commemoration of the Stonewall Inn and the tragic massacre in Orlando, I thought it would be good to revisit this place, which like so many other gay bars around the world, is much more than just a place. This is Remembering Stonewall by Dave Isay with Michael Shirker. Originally broadcast in 1989.
1: I am uh, Gene Harwood, and my age is 80.
2: I'm um, Bruce Merrill.
1: I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's really true, but now people do refer to us as the two oldest gay men in America. We do, ha- I think, have maybe a, a record relationship of almost 60 years together, being gay before Stonewall was was a a very difficult proposition because we felt that in order to survive, we had to try to look and act as rugged and and manly as possible to get by in the the society that was uh, really very much against us. My name is Randy Wicker. I was the first openly gay
2: person to appear on radio in 1962 and on television in 1964 as a self-identified homosexual. In the year before Stonewall, people felt a a need to hide because of the uh, precarious legal position they were in. They would lose their jobs. There was a great hostility, socially speaking, in the sense that people found out you were gay. They assumed you were a communist or a child molester or any of another dozen stereotypes that were rampant in the public media at the time.
3: I'm Jerry Fair, and I'm 80 years old. I started a gay lifestyle in 1948, when I was around 39 or 40. At that time, if there was even a suspicion that you were a lesbian... You were fired from your job, and you were in such a position of disgrace that you slunk out without saying goodbye even to the people that liked you and you liked. Never even bothered to clean your desk. You just disappeared. You just disappeared. You went quietly because you were afraid that the recriminations that would come if you even stood there and protested would be worse
2: than just leaving. My name is Sylvia Rivera. My name before that was Bray Rivera until I started dressing in drag in 1961. The era before Stonewall was a hard era. There was always the gay bashings on the drag queens by heterosexual men, women, and the police. We learned to live with it because it was part of the lifestyle at that time, I guess. But none of us were very happy about it.
4: My name is Seymour Pine. In 1968, I was assigned as deputy inspector in charge of public morals in the first division in the police department, which covered the Greenwich Village area. It was the duty of public morals to enforce all laws concerning vice and gambling, including prostitution, narcotics, and laws and regulations concerning homosexuality. The part of the Penal Code which applied to drag queens was section 240.35, section 4, being masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire or facial alteration Loiter[s], remains, or congregates in a public place with other persons. At that person time, we no lived at
2: the Arista the Hotel. That such we sit around, just try to figure out when it, when this harassment would come to an end. And we we would always dream that one day it would come to an end. And we prayed and we looked for it wanted to be human beings.
5: My name is Red Mahoney. I've been hanging out, drinking, partying, and working in the gay bars for the last 30 years. In the era before Stonewall, all all of the bars, 90% of the bars were Mafia controlled. There wasn't that many gay bars. You'd have maybe one, two uptown and the Upper East Side, they would get closed down, and they'd be one or two on the West Side, they'd get closed down, and Midtown there'd be one, two, three, maybe open. As they would get closed down, they'd move around, and they were dumps.
6: I'm Joe Nessel, co-founder of what is now the largest collection of lesbian culture in the world. The police raided lesbian bars regularly, and they did it. They both did it in the most um, obvious way, which was hauling women away in paddy wagons. But they did, there was regular weekend harassment, which would consist of the police coming in regularly to get their payoffs. And in the sea colony, we had a back room with a red light. And when that red light went on, it meant the police would be arriving in around 10 minutes. And so we all had to sit down at our tables. And we would be sitting there almost like schoolchildren. And the cops would come in. Now, depending on who was on, which cop was on, if it was some that really resented the butch women, who were with many times very beautiful women we knew we were in for it, because what would happen is, they would start harassing one of these women and saying, "Ha, huh, you think you're a man? Come outside, we'll show you. And the woman would be dragged away. They'd throw up against a wall and they'd say, so you think you're a man? Let's see what you got in your pants. And they would put their hand down her pants.
5: The stone wall, oh, that was a good boy that was. Just to get into the Stonewall, you'd walk up and you'd knock on the front door. You'd knock and the little door would open and, there, what do you want? A oh, Mary sent me good. Come on in, girls. You know, the Stonewall, like all gay bars at that time, were painted black. charcoal black. And what was the funny part? The place would be so dimly lit. But as soon as the cops were going to come in, collect their percentage or whatever they were coming in for from it being a nice dimly lit dump the place was lit up like luna park you felt
4: well two guys and that's very often all we sent in would be two men could handle 200 people i mean you tell them to leave and they leave and you say show me your identification and they all take out their identification and file out and and that's it and you say okay you're not a man, you're a woman, or you're vice versa, and, and you wait over there. I mean, this is a a,
2: a kind of power that you have, and you never gave it a second thought. The drag queen took a lot of oppression, and we had to... We We were at a point where, I guess, nothing would have stopped us. I guess... As they say, or as Shakespeare says, we were ladies in waiting, just waiting for the thing to happen. And when it did happen, we were there.
7: On Friday evening, June 27, 1969, at about 11.45, eight officers from New York City's public moral squad loaded into four unmarked police cars and headed to the Stonewall Inn here at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. The local precinct had just received a new commanding officer, who kicked off his tenure by initiating a series of raids on gay bars. The Stonewall was an inviting target. Operated by the Gambino crime family without a liquor license, the dance bar drew a crowd of drag queens, hustlers and minors. A number of the bar's patrons had spent the early part of the day outside the Frank Campbell Funeral Home, where Judy Garland's funeral was held. She had died the Sunday before. It was almost precisely at midnight that the moral Squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn led by
4: Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. There was never any reason to feel that uh, anything of any unusual situation
2: would occur that night. You could actually feel it in the air. You really could. I guess Judy Garland's death just really helped us really hit the
4: fan. For some reason, things were different this night. As we were bringing the prisoners out, they were resisting.
2: People started gathering in front of the Sheridan Square Park right across the street from Stonewall. People were upset. No, we're not going to go. And people started screaming and hollering.
4: One drag queen, as we put her in the car, opened the door on the other side and jumped out, uh, at which time uh, we had to chase that person and uh, he was caught put back into the car He made another attempt to get out the same door the other door and uh, at that point we had to handcuff the uh, uh, the person from this point on things really began to get crazy
8: my name is Robert Rivera and my nickname is Bertie and I've been cross-dressing all of my life I remember the night of the riots the police were escorting the queens out of the bar and into the paddy wagon, and there was this one particularly outrageously beautiful queen with stacks and stacks of Elizabeth style, Elizabeth Taylor style hair, and uh, she was asking them not to push her, and they continued to push her, and she turned around and she mashed the cop with her high heel. She knocked him down, and then she proceeded to frisk him for her the keys to the handcuffs that were on her. She got them and uh, she undid herself and passed them to another queen that was behind her. Well, that's when all hell broke loose at that And then we were... we had to get back into the Stonewall. My name is Howard Smith. On the night of the Stonewall riots, I was a reporter for the Village Voice, locked inside with the police covering it for my column. It really did appear that that crowd... because we could look through little peepholes in the plywood windows, we could look out, and we could see that the crowd—well, my guess was within five, ten minutes—it was probably several thousand people, and two to two thousand, easy. And they were yelling, "Kill the cops! Police brutality! Let's get them! We're not going to take this anymore! Let's we get them!" a
4: group of uh, persons uh, attempting to uproot uh, one of the. Uh, Parking meters, uh, which they, in which they did succeed, and they then uh, used that parking meter to uh, as a battering ram to break down the door, and they did in fact open the door. They crashed it in, and at that point was when they began throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into the place it was a situation that uh, we didn't know how we were going to be able to
2: control. I remember someone throwing a Molotov cocktail, I don't know who the person was but I mean I saw that and I just said to myself in Spanish I said oh my god the revolution is finally here and I just like started screaming freedom <laughs> we're free at last you know and it, it felt really good
8: there were a couple of cops stationed on either side of the door with their pistols like in a combat stance aimed in the door area couple others were stationed in other places behind like a pole another one behind the bar all of them with their guns ready I don't think up to that point I ever had ever seen cops that scared remember these were pros
4: but everybody was frightened there's no question about that I know I was frightened and I've been in in a combat situations and uh, there was never any time that I felt more scared than I felt that night. And, uh, I mean, there was just, you know, there was no place to run.
2: Once the tactical police force showed up, I think that really incited us a little bit more. My name is Martin Boys. And in 1969, I was a drag queen known as Miss Mark. I remember on that night when we saw the riot police, all of us drag queens, we linked arms like the Rockets and sang the song we used to sing We are the village girls. We wear our hair and curls. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. And the police went crazy hearing that and they just immediately rushed us. We gave one kick and fled. My name is Rudy and uh, the night
5: of the stone while I was 18 and to tell you the truth that night I was doing more running than fighting I remember looking
2: back from 10th Street and there on Waverly Street there was a police I believe on his uh, cop on his stomach in his tactical uniform and his helmet and everything else with a drag queen straddling him she was beating the hell out of him with her shoe Whether it was a high heel or not, I don't know. But she was beating the hell out of him. It was hysterical.
9: My name is Mama Jean. Uh, I'm a lesbian. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a women's bar, called Cookies. We were coming out of the gay bar, going toward 8th Street. And that's when we saw everything happen. Blasting away, people getting beat up. Police coming from every direction. Uh, hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks. Uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there whether we were scared or not, we didn't think about it, we just jumped in.
2: Here, this queen is going completely bananas, you know, jumping and hitting the windshield. And next thing you know, the taxi cab was being turned over, the cars were being turned over, things... Windows were shattering all over the place, fires were burning around the place. <laughs> It was, a beu- it was beautiful. It really was. It was really beautiful.
9: I remember one cop coming at me, hitting me with the nightstick in the back of my legs. I broke loose, and I went after him. I grabbed his nightstick. My girlfriend went behind him. She was a strong seven again. I wanted him to feel the same pain I felt. And I kept on saying to him, how do you like the pain? Do you like it? Do you like it? And I kept on hitting him and hitting him. I was angry. I wanted to kill him. At that particular minute, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to do every destructive
2: thing that I could think of at that time to hurt anyone that had hurt us through the years.
9: It's like just when you see a man protecting his own life. They weren't the queens that people call them. They were men fighting for their lives. And I'd fight alongside them any day, no matter how old I was.
2: A lot of heads were bashed. That a lot of people were hurt. But it didn't hurt there true feelings they all came back from war and war nothing that's when you could tell that nothing could stop us at that time or at any time in the future
7: Riots were well covered in the media. The New York Daily News featured it on the front page. There were reports on all of the local television and radio stations. By the next day, graffiti calling for gay power had started to show up all over the West Village. The next night, thousands of men and women came back to the Stonewall to see what would happen next. While a couple of trash cans were set on fire and some stones were thrown, the 400 riot police milling around outside the bar ensured that the previous evening's violence would not be repeated. But on this night, gay couples could be spotted walking hand in hand and kissing in the streets. Just by being at the Stonewall, surrounded by reporters, photographers, and onlookers, thousands of men and women were proclaiming that they were gay. The crowds grew and came back the next night and for one more night the following week. What happened at the Stonewall on those nights helped to usher in a new era for gay men and lesbians.
1: When Stonewall happened, uh, Bruce and I were still in the closet uh, where, where we had been for nearly 40 years But we realized that this, this was a, a a tremendous thing That had happened at, at Stonewall And it gave us a feeling that We were not going to be remaining closeted For very much longer And soon thereafter, we did come out of the closet
9: My name is Ginny Apuzzo In uh, 1969, I was uh, in the convent And um, when Stonewall... Hit the press, it hit me with a bolt of lightning. It was as if I had uh, an incredible release um, of my own outrage at having to sequester so much of my life. I made wa- my way down. I seem to recall um, in subsequent nights being uh, down on the, you know, kind of just in the periphery looking, observer, clearly an observer, clearly longing to have that courage to come out, and um, it was a matter, as I recall, it was only a matter of weeks before I left the convent and um, started a new life.
4: I'm Henry Baird. In 1969, I was in the U.S. Army, a Specialist Three, stationed at Long Binh Post near Saigon in Vietnam. I remember I was having lunch in the Army mess, reading the Armed Forces' news summary of the day, and there was a short paragraph describing a riot led by homosexuals in Greenwich Village against the police and my heart was filled with joy. I thought about what I had read frequently but had no one to discuss it with and secretly within myself I decided that when I came back stateside, if I should survive to come back stateside, I would come out as a gay person and I did. For those of us in public morals, after the uh, Stonewall incident, things were completely changed from what they had previously been. They, they suddenly were not submissive anymore. They now suddenly had gained a, a new type of uh, courage. And it seemed as if they didn't care anymore about whether their identities were, were made known. We were now dealing with human beings.
3: Today, I live in a senior citizen apartment building. What's different now is that I can be free. I have a daughter who's a senior citizen and my son is 58. They know about my homosexuality. My three grandchildren in the 30s know about their grandmother. I have a great granddaughter who at the age of 10 learned that Grandma Jerry was a lesbian and she thought that was most interesting. And yet I still don't have the personal courage to not care if these Yentis in the building know that Jerry's a lesbian.
4: Well, I retired from the police department in 1976. 20 years have passed. I'm, I'm going to be 70 in a few months. I still don't know the answers. I would still like to know the answer. I would like to know whether I was wrong, or whether I was right in, in ever thinking that there was a difference and ever thinking that maybe you shouldn't trust a a homosexual because something is missing in his personality.
6: The archives of lesbian culture, which surrounds us now and was created four years after Stonewall, owes, at least for my part, its creation to that night and the courage that found its voice in the streets. That night, in some very deep way, we finally found our place in history. Not as a dirty joke. Not as a doctor's case study. Not as a freak, but as a people.
2: Today I'm a 38-year-old drag queen. I can keep my long hair, I can pluck my eyebrows, and I can work wherever the hell I want. (laughs) And I'm not going to change for anybody. If I change, then I feel that that I'm losing what 1969 brought into my life. And that was to be totally free.
5: How can I ever close the door and be
6: the same as I was? for
1: mm-hmm.
5: darling love
0: Remembering Stonewall was produced by Dave Isay with Michael Shirker in 1989. This documentary was a production of Sound Portraits, which went on to spawn StoryCorps, which is dedicated to collecting, sharing, and preserving people's stories from around the world. You might have heard StoryCorps on the radio, but their podcast, which is hosted by their producers, offers longer stories that go more in-depth and offer more backstory. It's even better than it is on the radio. You can get it and get more information about StoryCorps at StoryCorps.org. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Delaney Hall, Kurt Colstead, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported by Ministry of Supply. Ministry of Supply makes performance clothes for the modern workday. With the lines between work and life blurring more and more, everyday clothing needs to be able to do more. But traditional menswear is stiff, restrictive, and uncomfortable. You can't do much in it. Ministry of Supply, launched by MIT engineers, uses human-centered design to identify and then eliminate those exact problems. The result is work clothing that adapts and performs across the many phases of the modern workday work, travel, happy hour, and beyond. It's not too casual, it's not too fancy. It just looks sharp and makes you feel good. Visit Ministry of Supply slash Invisible to save 15% off your first purchase, or you can visit one of their stores in Boston, San Francisco, or Washington, D.C. and mention the show and you can get 15% off your first purchase there. This offer is valid only to July 16th, so get your supply on now. Support also comes from Amy's Kitchen of Petaluma, California. Amy's makes, like, All the best stuff in the frozen food section. That's not officially sanctioned language. This is me talking. They also make dynamite soups and salsas. They're the real deal. Even though you're heating it up in your kitchen, they make it taste like it was homemade for you. And there's a reason for that. They cook their food by hand like you would in your own home. Their ingredients are hand chopped. Their pizzas are hand stretched. Their burritos are hand rolled. Then they just put it in big freezers and send it to stores all over. They were a fast, easy, tasty, organic option before it was cool. And I was delighted to learn that they're big fans of the show. And they commissioned an original poster by Justin Devine that says, Beautiful Nerd. And they're giving away 999 copies of this limited edition screen print. To find out how to throw your name in the hat to be randomly selected, go to amys.com 99pi. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX is made possible by our generous donors around the globe, The Knight Foundation and MailChimp. MailChimp just launched a new online store called Freddy & Co. That's F-R-E-D-D-I-E-A-N-D dot C-O, Freddy & Co., And it's a place where you can buy limited edition products made by cool companies with 100% of the profit going to charities that MailChimp loves. Their first collaboration is with the Australian Odd Pairs Sock Company. They make really cool socks. And the charity partner is Lost and Found Youth, an Atlanta-based organization dedicated to ending homelessness of LGBTQ youth. Check it out at freddyand.co. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. You can follow us all on Twitter and Instagram. But the best way to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world is to click around the hundreds and hundreds of stories on 99pi.org. Topia.